When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talking podcast. I'm David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, and alongside, as always, Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, how you doing? I am well, David. Good. We have a lot to go through today, including we got some great responses to your idea last week about famous athletes or notable people that we have all played against during our younger days. We got some really good responses to that, including some pancake references, and pancakes okay. makes everything better, Terry. So. But anyway, let's talk about the Cavaliers, the Red Hot Cavaliers, mm-hmm. 34 and 22. They're number four in the East. They're actually two games behind the Sixers right now, and they're only five behind the Celtics, who are in first place. Uh, that was some game last night in Washington, wasn't it, Terry? Yeah, the, the, you put the last 96 minutes together, or the Pacer game than that one. It's extremely impressive. I mean, Washington was out a cup without a couple of their guys, but still. Uh, We've been banging away on the theme of get the ball the big man, get the ball the big man. And it's amazing what happens when you do that because they shoot a high percentage and it just gets them more involved. I think they're better on defense when they see the ball on offense. You don't have to put as much pressure on your guards, too, to score all the time. So uh, I just I love the way they defended and moved the ball. It was really just I'm lumping those two games together into one long game of how the Cavs should play. And to me, that's exciting. And for all the talk about, you know, yeah, the gnashing of teeth or whatever, when they win one, lose one, win one, lose one, as you mentioned, was it five behind the Celtics now and a couple behind Philadelphia? So Terry, you mentioned the big men and there's some uh, Robbie Fenbers who does some calves behind the numbers post. Jared Allen went 10 of 13 from the field <laughs> last night. Yeah. And it's the sixth time in the last eight games that he has shot 70% or better. And it's the fourth time in the last eight games that he shot 75% or better. And he's yeah. in the league in shooting percentage with 64.7%. Uh, and Robbie's got that all in a post that went up today. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Wizards were talking about this after the game last night. It's like job one is putting pressure on Mitchell and Garland, but then you do that, and you've got to worry about the pick and roll and all these mm-hmm. guys flying down the lane. And uh, th- this is the best you've seen the Cavs this season? Would you agree with that? Probably in that stretch. Yeah. Now, when we talk about him shooting, you know, 70% or more, 
Um, last year, he shot 68% from the field. I'm talking about Jared Allen. In 2020 and 21, he shot 68% from the field. Exactly, by the way, 677. So he's never shot as a pro since his second year in the league. The lowest he's ever shot is 61%. So you look at that, and what that tells you is two out of three times when he shoots the ball, it's probably going to go in because he's very careful when he shoots it and where he shoots it from. But I like he's using his left hand more. Uh, and then, of course, he's a he's a force defensively that uh, you know is exciting. And now, when you kind of look at some of their stats along those lines, um, and you you look at what Evan Mobley shooting fifty five percent from the field now, and Jarrett's up to sixty five percent. So you have those two. I mean, Gar Garland's got his shooting percentage up to forty six. So it's really been. Uh, uh, it's, it's been impressive. Actually, Dean Wade is better than I thought at 46%. So uh, I don't want to just overwhelm with numbers, but the idea being that, uh, um, yeah, three points are better than two, but what's our line? Two points are better than none. And also when you go inside, remember that when Jared Allen misses, he causes such havoc on that end that oftentimes it's an easier lane for um, another person, probably Mobley or somebody else, to get a rebound. And also, big men draw fouls, too, and that helps you. So um, there's a lot of good things when the big guys sh- uh, shoot and score. But Robin Lopez wanted to be in it. He wants it on the record that he has shot 64% this year. <laughs> he Mark is. He, uh, he on 34 me? for 53. He'll probably tweet it out. Remember the night that uh, I think that uh, when Donovan Mitchell went for 71, I think he tweeted out he and Mitchell combined for 72 points that night. Yep. A classic tweet. So, hey, so Terry, during the season, there's always, I don't know, three to five, kind of a handful of moments that kind of define a season for a team. And I, I know the Cavs have won three in a row now, but mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking about that loss to Miami last week. It, it, it was 197, but the Cavs played a full 48 minutes against a good team with a deep culture and and played defense at a playoff yep. level and almost won that one. And even though they didn't win, I'm kind of wondering when we get to the end of the season, if we're going to look back at that game against the heat and think that was when things clicked. And what I do you also think about that? That game, well, you had the, the Mitchell fight, which is always fun to look at um, with Memphis. That game also showed them sort of a bit of the fallacy. Remember they were relying on the three point. That was a shot. That was a night where they took, uh, I think it was 44 threes and like 40 from two-point range, and they, sh- they shot like, you know, 65% on one and, and like 2% on the other. I, mean, they, I think they were like 11 for 43 or something on those threes. And then they, I think they looked at that and said, why were we not going inside more? And that is a thing that changed. And let's, let's take some of the pressure off the guards for the scoring. And I also believe that um, – Garland and Mitchell, they're not just out there playing for their stats. I don't see that in them. Frankly, they both have long-term max contracts. It's not like they need to add a couple of points to their, their scoring average for a financial reason. So this is more of a the team approach. I think it's the more what uh, JB envisioned. So, Terry, we're, we've been talking off and on about the trade deadline coming up here. And mm-hmm. um, Chris Fedor, our colleague who covers the Cavs, has a really interesting story today with uh, Karis Levert. 
And boy, you think with all the social media and these guys being on their phones that they would be checking every trade rumor. And, and you know, Karis Levert is one of the players who didn't mention as a possibility that the Cavs might try to move if they wanted to upgrade. And he's basically saying, I don't look at any of that stuff. I'm planning on being here unless they tell us otherwise. And, you know, he's just kind of rolling with it and he's planning on being a Cav the rest of the season, which I thought was really interesting because a lot of these guys take the opposite approach. But Mm -hmm. you look at the way these last this last week has gone and you've kind of been saying that the Cavs would be fine standing pat. And this probably just even adds more credence to what you've been saying is just take it easy. Don't go crazy at the trade deadline, not that they have a lot of assets anyway, but this is just another reason, right? This recent play in your mind, or how do you feel about well, the trade you, deadline? Well, I just right got now? him up. So he was traded. Um, he was a, a Brooklyn quite a bit earlier in his career. Then on January 13th of 21, so basically uh, 25 months ago, he was traded um, that point to Indiana. He actually was in that huge deal that brought Jared Allen to Cleveland as four teams. Then February 7th, uh, today, in fact, only it was a year ago, he was traded to the Cavs. So then if you turn around, you know, right now, so no one, he probably isn't checking it because he's been traded a couple of times. I realize you, you have nothing you can do about it. Now there's, Chris outlines it in the story, and I'm not going to talk at length about it because it gets too confusing. But uh, if they keep him and he walks away as a free agent, it kind of messes their salary cap up. If they use him as an asset to bring in a player under contract for next year, um, it'll help them. And that's why I still think there's a chance he might be traded for somebody like Malik Beasley, uh, a shooter who, while isn't the all-around player that Levert is, might fit actually a little better. And also, if nothing else, he's on, under contract for next year. So I wouldn't be sh- shocked if they did that. But it's, you know, it's just not a... Uh, it's not a major deal. You know, you look at Levert, and he's really tried hard to fit in, but I just think it's been a difficult go for him. Um, you know, it's, it's actually his three-point shooting is the best it's been for his career, 37%. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a big fan of him. And that buys nothing personally because, like I said, he's tried to fit in. He, he clearly uh, is a good, as they say, culture guy, but his game is is too too much with the ball. Well, and J.B. Bickerstaff has really been trying to pump him up. I mean, after the game last night, talking about how he's a starter, he's an NBA starter, but yeah. for us, he's not, and we're really lucky to have him. And so I, I think they're trying to make it so that if he does stick around, he'll feel like he's got an important role on the team. So, um, And, and J.B.'s is good at that. I wrote about that for the last weekend. You know, when he came out and kind of had this defense of his team, and some people took it as him being thin-skinned. Um, if you read it, it could sound that way. If you listen to it, you could find it, you know, there. You listen to his tone of voice. He was talking clearly to his players. That's how I saw it because it wasn't a let's rip the media kind of thing. It was more of reminding his guys, oh, wait a minute, we're still pretty good here. And also, he is demanding for them to play this defensive style on a team that is so young, young guys like to run around, shoot, score, pile up numbers. They don't want to hear about defending and switching and all this kind of stuff that he's been selling since day one. So I believe that that's another reason he wanted to uh, circle the wagons around his players to kind of like stay the course. 
And Terry, just uh, by way of reset here for our listeners, the trade deadline is at three o'clock on Thursday. And the Cavs are without their 2023 pick, which, as you mentioned, was in the Karis LeVert trade. Um, assuming the Cavs make the playoffs, that'll go to Indiana, their first rounder. And then 25, 27, and 29 all went to Utah in the Donovan Mitchell trade. So basically, that's why they the can't Cavs trade a pick strong. for. Yeah, they can't trade a pick forever because you can't, you have to have um, you have to have a pick every other year in the first round unless they happen to acquire one and some other major deal. I mean, look, these guys have surprised me in the past. Now, the Levert thing was rumored last year. Uh, I remember that. But the Mitchell trade seemingly came out of nowhere. The the uh, Jared Allen deal came out of nowhere. So a number of their big trades, they kept the lid on them and just kind of sprung it on everybody. So the fact we haven't heard anything, um, yeah, they still may do something. You never know with the Cavs. They're always looking. So. Uh, Terry, I wonder if we should, can we talk for a few minutes about Isaac Okoro as sure. he relates to Kevin Love? Um, we got Caleb Mackey from Columbus is a long time listener of the pod. And he says, Hey, Terry and David, do you guys have any thoughts as to why Kevin Love has not been playing lately? He has not been shooting well since his thumb injury, but it seems like he's healthy now, as far as I can tell, could they potentially be trying to get him healthy for a trade? Probably not, but we can get into that. Um, my hope is they're getting him healthy for the stretch run. He has the most playoff experience of anyone on the roster. Veterans like him are indispensable come playoff time. So Isaac Okoro has just been getting this of late. I, you know, he, he shot well last night um, and he's made 23 of his last 45 three point attempts in the last 15 games. And that's, that's over 51%. Are these two things related in your mind or, or are they just kind of independent? I think they're mostly independent because Okoro is shooting guards slash small forward. Um, and his value is on the on the defensive end. It's nice that he's making threes because that if you notice, like my guy, Lamar Stevens, has sort of lost his job to Okoro. He doesn't play much at all. Uh, Love situation is um, – JB worries a little bit about love and the pick and roll defense and that kind of stuff. So if he's not shooting very well, then I think JB tends to uh, uh, go away from him. Uh, I'm just kind of looking at some of uh, Okoro's numbers, and it's it's really it's it's pretty good. I mean, if you go all the way back, um, really since January 1st and that's 19 games. I mean, he's, you know, he's shooting like 49% on threes and, uh, and it's just, and he's tough defensively. You know, he's one of the, he's one of the early junkyard dogs. Kevin is an interesting discussion because of the value that uh, he mentioned about his experience. And last year when he was healthy and scoring and really drawing those charges and he was a big part of, really helping JB get those guys around to this is how we're going to play. But, you know, this is a sort of a throwback to two years ago. He can't stay healthy. He struggled. The The difference is he's not, uh, uh, remember how, you know, basically he was kind of pouting a couple of years ago. This has not been that, but he's just not really been able to get anything going at all. I mean, that's an asset they could trade. You know, you hate when your person is related to an asset, but that's how they talk in the NBA at this point. If somebody wanted to take his contract, you know, I believe it's $28 million, and then turn around and uh, 
trade the Cavs a player that uh, would fit in for this year or next year. So they did that with Elgaskis a number of years ago. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And they could, uh, they could, tr- they could do that with Kevin. But I haven't heard anything about Kevin. Um, Brian Winhurst is a good friend of mine in that, and he's not heard anything about Kevin. He's at ESPN. He's more plugged in than I am. Chris has not heard anything about Kevin. You know, he's extremely plugged in with us. So the two basketball writers I trust the most, you know, Fedor and Winhurst, haven't heard anything, and I haven't heard anything. Because I think when you look at the tape, it's not real good right now. Well, and that is a big salary to match. I mean, for, for yeah. sending him out of out of town, and and what would you get back? And and there'd probably be some more money coming back for something like that. Oh yeah, it, it's you'd a have tough, to make it bet. like a, a you probably take a what they say quote unquote a bad contract back, but a guy you kind of liked, um, that that sort of stuff. But um, it's just it's been a hard go for him. I mean, it this, has, and, and Terry, like you know, we, like we've been talking about with Isaac Okoro making three pointers. I mean, one of Kevin Love's real values on the offensive end is helping to space the floor for everybody yeah. else. And if Isaac Okoro is hitting those corner threes, that is part of what Kevin Love's job description mm-hmm. is: is those corner threes. Yeah, so and, that t- and also Okoro can get to the rack. Like yeah. he, he can take the ball to the rim in a way that Kevin Love can't. And and you have the defense like you were just talking about. And I think that's why JB's going to him a little bit right now. All right, since January 1st, Kevin Love is shooting 303 from the field. And um, basically that's 23 of 76. And on three-point range, he's shooting 23%. So he's just not making any shots at all. He's not even going down the low block. Now, maybe that thumb is preventing him from catching the ball, you know, in traffic and scoring. And then he's had the back thing and all that. It's it's too bad because I was hoping they could have another love renaissance year. Because boy, would that be perfect on this team? Because they need the old stretch four, you know, the the power forward that makes the long shots. And as you, you do mention, that Coral's giving them some of that and other things too. So that they really are hoping. Dean Wade can be the guy. They're very high on Wade. You know, they thought he was kind of a poor man's Lori Markkinen. And I go back to the day they traded marketing and Chris Fedor and I were just talking to a couple of the coaches. It was a background talk afterwards. And Sidney Lowe, one of the assistant coaches was talking to us about that. And um, we were going through some of the guys and Lowe goes, now don't forget Dean Wade. We like, we really like Wade. You know, he was coming along. He's six foot 10. He can make some threes. And that was put out there for a reason. And it's been coming to pass as yeah, of late. So, yeah, because really, he's, remember, he's come back. they were going to go with him, and then he got hurt, and he got hurt again. I think he had a shoulder and then an ankle. So they want to go along. That's the, a lot of those minutes are going to Dean Wade also. But, I mean, look at those numbers on Kevin. I mean, they're bad. Well, Terry, you know how it works in the NBA, and just to, to – Go back to what Caleb was writing here. Things change quickly, and there yeah. might be – I mean, Kevin Love might go from being a, a healthy scratch last night to being an important mm-hmm. piece down the road if there's – if someone turns an ankle or something and all of a sudden things change. So uh, we shall see. But uh, certainly not the season Kevin Love had intended. So, uh, Terry, another big thing we need to talk about this week, LeBron James will be breaking Kareem's all-time NBA scoring record. 
Uh, it's interesting. I don't know if you saw this post, but and I wanted to point out to the listeners, but Mary, uh, Mary Schmidt-Boyer, who used to cover the Cavs for the Plain Dealer for a long time, a great NBA writer, uh, shot me an email last week and she's like, hey, Wayne Embry predicted this 15 years ago. And I'm like, really? And so I went back and I found the story and sure really? enough, 15 years ago this week, Wayne Embry, in a story that Mary wrote, predicted that LeBron was someday going to break the record. And here we are 15 years after he said that. Of course, Wayne Embry, longtime uh, general manager for the Cavs and around the NBA and, and a Hall of Famer. And I just thought that was remarkable. But uh, yeah. what, what do you think of LeBron's ascension to the scoring crown this week and, and any other thoughts you have on LeBron? It's kind of a momentous week in the NBA. Well, I have a long story going up tomorrow talking about my memories of LeBron because uh, uh, while well, I grew up in Cleveland, I've, I've lived in Akron since the middle 80s and because I was working at the Beacon Journal for years. And, and I was at the Beacon Journal when he was doing all his stuff at, uh, at St. Vincent St. Mary's. Uh, so I watched the whole ascension of it. And the, a guy who never cared about winning the scoring title, and he never did, is going to become the all-time winning scorer. Michael Jordan, and I know uh, Phil Jackson mentioned this and some others. I can't remember who else I talked to with the Bulls. It might have been Jerry Krause or somebody like that. What said, you know, Michael's a you know, great teammate all that, but he wanted to win that scoring title. So at the end of that regular season, he kind of washed the last month, and if he had to start racking up some 40-point games to make sure he won it, he won it. And so that was the thing that mattered. The only year that uh, – uh, that uh, that's 2008-9 is when uh, LeBron won the scoring title. But that was really he, – he just kind of needed to do it that year because the team wasn't very good. I'm looking here. Michael won one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight in a row. Then he went and played only part of a year for baseball, and then he won three more in a row. So he won 11 in a row. That is not by accident. The man wanted to win the scoring title. Uh, and perhaps he wanted also to, you know, pass Kareem. He didn't get do that. And here's LeBron, who, no, nah, he liked to score his 25 or whatever, but that wasn't what he was about. It wasn't what he was about in high school. I mean, think about this. He averaged 28, 29 his last two years in high school. He scores 25 in his first NBA game. I mean, what could he have scored in high school? Once in a while, we'd throw in 50 just to show he could do it. Uh, but I remember games where they were telling him to shoot more because they were in a tight game against one of these nationally ranked teams. Another time I saw LeBron, they were playing um, this in this tournament in New Jersey. And I forgot where the team was from, probably Los Angeles. But the player on the team was Trevor Ariza. And at that point, he was a very hyped high school kid. And he played in the NBA for quite a while, Trevor Ariza. And LeBron, this was one once in a while he'd go out, and he just did it for a half. He went at Trevor Ariza in this showcase game and just destroyed him in the first half. Then Ariza's out warming up for the second half. And I don't know who this person was to Ariza, but he comes down by the court. And he is and it's clearly somebody that knew him, whether it was a relative or something. You you stink. You're soft. All that. That James just, you know, all that sort of stuff. And at that point, LeBron's team was up big. And I think he kind of coasted to 35. But he just showed, and and, and, and Ariza was a broken man, by the way, or a young man at that point, what he could do at different times. One of the few players that when LeBron really went at him that didn't back down, there was another game. This is when he was a junior. He played against Oak Hill, and I was at this game. And 
Um, Carmel Anthony, maybe he's either a junior or sophomore year. I forgot which, but he wasn't a senior. They went against Oak Hill, Carmel Anthony, and they both scored in the middle 30s. It was a great game. Uh, Oak Hill won at the end. LeBron missed a jumper that could have won the game for um, St. Saint, Saint Vincent St. Mary. Uh, so those were one of the few guys that, that could stand up to him because physically when he wanted to turn it on, he was dominating. But, you know, he had kind of the scoring talent on Michael Jordan in the heart of Magic Johnson. I mean, he really did like getting everybody involved. Yeah, and it's really something, Terry. You know, he's always said, I'm not a scorer. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. a scorer. I'm a player, and I do whatever it takes to win. And here he is going to be the all-time NBA scoring champion. And by the what, way, what he would fun. never take part in the three-point – or I'm sorry, well, forget the three-point. He didn't belong there. The slam dunk contest. He just wouldn't. I'm sure he would have won that. And I heard Nike wanted him to do it, but he wouldn't do it because he didn't want to be viewed as just a dunker. But the longevity thing, baseball would be maybe the one. I mean, I mean there's a couple areas. You have, you have Tom Brady, what he did in football, you know, into his 40s. Baseball, there's some players we'd have to go back and kind of look. I cannot think, though, of another pro basketball player at such a high level um, bearing down on his 40th birthday like LeBron is. Yeah, it's really something. And, and uh, I wanted to mention this, Terry. Wouldn't this be something? Uh, Joe Varden, who works for The Athletic now and used to cover the Cavs for Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, I, I saw him reporting today that LeBron has been working on a skyhook with his mm-hmm. trainers the last couple of weeks. So wouldn't that be a tribute and kind of very LeBron if he set the record on a skyhook in tribute to Kareem? That would be classic, wouldn't it? It would, David. And on top of that, LeBron was always respectful to former NBA players and and those that went before him. I remember him telling me about watching tapes of Julius Irving. He was very interested in that. Uh, Well, Michael was his favorite player. In fact, when he was a sophomore, I remember interviewing him, and we got into size. He goes, I'm 6'6 and a half because that's what Michael Jordan was listed as. (laughs) And he had 23 all over, you know, the – that was on his uh, on his wall. But even like when LeBron was a freshman, he averaged 20. And he could have averaged more. Maverick Carter was the star of that team who later became his business manager. And Maverick was a senior. And so those are the things that look. LeBron, you know, if you go back and you look at the rearview mirror of his career and that, if the worst thing he did was a stupid decision show when he went to Miami, and it was a bad move. Um if you really actually want to find out some a lot of kind of cool stuff behind that, I wrote a lot about it in my book, uh, the come uh, the comeback about LeBron and the Cavs winning that title, which is a book I worked on for a year and a half before they they won it. In fact, at one point in that year in 2016, David, it looked like they might get knocked out in the in the uh, Eastern Finals by Toronto, and I was having discussion with my publisher david gray of like well maybe we just ought to hold this thing for another year because i'm not sure to come back to do that you know they, they came back and they knocked off i think they were down two to one in that and they knocked off toronto and then then took out golden state but there's a lot in there about how the decision thing came about what he did but i'm saying so that's it you know in terms of he said some dumb stuff along the way when you interviewed all that much for 20 years you can say some dumb things but overall it's pretty pretty um Impressive, and on top of that, the I Promise School, the stuff that he's done here at LeBron James Foundation in, in Akron is is impressive, and it's real, and it takes a lot of attention, not just money, but it, personal attention from he and his uh, people close to him. 
Well said, Terry. Uh, it, all right, so it could happen tonight. The Lakers are playing in a 10 o'clock game against Oklahoma City out on the West Coast. So if it happens tonight, it might be late. And as for the Cavs, they are back at it on Wednesday night against Detroit. Then they're Friday at New Orleans, Saturday against the Bulls at home. Another home game on Monday against the Spurs, and then back at it next Wednesday, Terry, against the Sixers in Philadelphia, which will be very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Maybe a playoff matchup preview. You never know. So, I want to highlight, too, I just Jimmy Watkins, one of our new writers, wrote a really nice story on uh, talking to people who coached and played against LeBron in high school. It's up on Cleveland.com, and I know they're going to be running it in the paper over the weekend. Uh, very worth checking out. All right. Thanks for that, Terry. Hey, let's take a break, right? Um, when we come back, we're going to talk some guardians. Terry was at the John Adams services, and I also want to get his thoughts on spring training. Uh, we have some really fun emails from people. Yeah. Terry Terry had this great idea last week where we started talking about Sean Payton and athletes we'd played against in our younger days to have people send in some stories of who they played against over the years. So we're going to read some of those. And uh, then we've got some other Hey Terry questions that so we have time. So We'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. All right, Terry, um, a couple of Guardians things to get into. Uh, last week, you were honored as a choice to be a pallbearer for John Adams' funeral service, uh, the longtime drummer for the Indians and Guardians. And I, I, I thought Paul Hoynes, our colleague, did a wonderful job capturing the kind of the moments of the, of the day. And it, you were there. Can you, why don't you talk for a minute about just what it was like and what you saw and, and uh, the, just the, the farewell to John Adams. In a lot of ways, it was kind of like John's, how, how John became a, uh, you know, icon, plumber, you know, a guy who one day came with a drum to a game. Uh, yes. They had the funeral mass downtown and they plot, they planned a few things. They had bagpipes, but uh, there were people out on the sidewalk, just, pounding a drum, you know, reverentially and sort of getting together. His music friends came out and just to pay tribute to him. I thought um, Vicky Arita, who was uh, Vicky was and her husband were kind of the people that were helping John basically the end powers of attorney, close friends to the family and that because John had very little family. Uh, She gave the uh, eulogy and one of the things she mentioned was that while john's middle name was joseph it should have been volunteer because john volunteered for things in fact this is a little bit of what i ended up doing a faith column about listening to that because i was thinking about first of all um if you're a fan you actually are a volunteer you're volunteering to follow whatever team you're volunteering you're not really paid to do it um and john never was paid by the tribe or the guardians. He was given free tickets after uh, several years, but he was never paid. And he was known for, I mean, teaching classes for disabled, uh, swimming classes for disabled people at Cleveland State and raising money for all kinds of charity. That was him. He worked at AT AT&T. So it struck me as John was a volunteer and there are a lot of the volunteers showed up to pay tribute to him. And it just, it, it made me feel good. And, um, you know what John did every day, and this struck me, when he went out, whether well, it was to a game, and I remember I, ver- I visited him in the nursing home a few times, he volunteered to be a nice guy that day. And that's, people say, well, you think volunteering, oh, I've got to go work at a shelter, 
whatever it is. Yeah, there's that stuff. But sometimes it's like I'm volunteering not to be a jerk today. And so that's the thing that struck me about John and the funeral and what Vicky said. All right. Well, check out Terry's Faith in You column on Saturday and, and uh, read about all that. And uh, t- Terry, you know, I think we talked about this last week, just the way he came to the team and to this vocation as to, to tie into what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're probably never going to see anything like it again. We, I doubt we really it. Won, and it was, it was just, uh, he did, he volunteered. And I, I think that's really well put. So, um, all right, Terry, we, Kind of started talking about Sean Payton and some other notable athletes that we have played against in our past. Did you think of any other anybody else that you ran across in your play? Anybody else that, that humiliated me? Um, <laughs> no, although I did get fouled in a basketball game, which was actually a, a controlled scrimmage by Lawrence Boston, who played at JF, Cleveland JFK and then went on to play briefly in the NBA. And he was at uh, John Kennedy High School when I was at Benedictine. And I made both free throws. That's it. <laughs> and didn't even count. They just had those kind of scrimmages. They, I mean, we were in uniforms. They had the clock, but this was like these pre whatever things you did before the real high school games counted. And whereupon I was sent back to the junior varsity. <laughs> yeah. And mine was, I, I played against Sean Payton in high school in the, in the state football playoffs when I was uh, mm-hmm. in, back in the day. So, but you came up with this wonderful idea. You said we should have people send in stories of when they played with people. And boy, we got some really good ones here. So why don't we spend a few minutes on that? And uh, okay. I'll run through some of these. This one is from Don Whitmer. I'm sorry, Dan Whitmer, who lives in Akron. And he says, uh, Hey, Terry and David, you were asking us to send in stories about sports players we played against. I had the chance to play against CJ McCollum and Costa Kufos when CJ oh. was a freshman and Costa was a senior. Of course, of course, Costa played at Ohio State. I played at Green, and they played nearby at Glen Oak. Most people figured Costa was destined for the NBA because he was a seven-footer who was mobile and in high school had a nice shooting touch. No one would have predicted at the mm-hmm. time that CJ would be in the NBA, let alone a perennial borderline all-star. He had great fundamentals but he must have only been five feet tall. I then watched my brother go against CJ and Larry Nance Jr. at Revere. He graduated at the same time as, as Nance. Nance was also a late bloomer, similar to CJ. It has been an amazing time for people in Northeast Ohio make it, making it to the NBA, and I didn't even mention LeBron. So thanks for that, Dan. And to underline that point, Dave, Colin went to Lehigh. I believe that was his only Division One grant. And my friend Larry Shiat who was just named the new coach at Wyoming, came and Larry Nash Jr. went there. And he said the only other Division One grant at that point that Larry Nash Jr. had was James Madison. So that does show it. Now, there was somebody else, by the way. I had one of those where you look at him, you never believe he would make the big leagues. Uh, but I sat on the bench for those games. Uh, we played Collinwood in baseball when I was at Benedictine and sitting on that bench. And Jerry Dubzinski was a shortstop for Collinwood who ended up going to Cleveland. He was this tall, real skinny kid with glasses, and you would never have guessed. I mean, he was a nice player at Collinwood, but, I mean, he went to Cleveland State. You know, he just sort of there and ends up being in, in the big leagues. Yeah, and had a nice career and was a fan favorite here. <laughs> so you there never you go. Know. So, all right, Dan, thanks for that letter. This next one is from uh, Chris Grenot. Hope I said your last n- name right, Chris. He says uh, – I played football for Menor between 1992 and 94. I played mostly special teams and backup outside linebacker. At five foot nothing and a hundred nothing pounds, <laughs> I was all heart and hustle. 
1993, we had a scrimmage against Sandusky. I got rotated in at outside linebacker for a series against their first team offensive line. And lo and behold, who am I lining up against? None other than six foot seven, 300 pound Orlando Pace. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he let out a slight chuckle when we lined up. I'd love to say how I used my speed to get around him to sack the QB. But in reality, as I recall, I got pancaked once and otherwise did my best to hold my own pancaked by the legendary Mr. Pancakes. So thanks for that letter, Chris. And Orlando Pace is probably, he's got to be one of the 10 best football players ever to come out of Ohio. You got to think, right, Terry? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and he he survived to talk about it, so that's good. That's right. All right, this next one is from Bruce Ebright from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He says, hey, Terry, my oldest son Daniel was 12 years old. He represented the state of Pennsylvania in a Cooperstown tournament. In a Teener League baseball event in 1999, David Price played for Mm. Florida, I believe. He had one at bat against him and struck out. Florida ended up winning the tournament. So that's an issue. That's a big name there. Yeah, um, I would not have the courage to stand in the in the box against David Price. I'll tell you that. The the one that I mentioned was uh, Dave Tobik, who um, pitched pretty well for the Tigers relief and was threw pretty hard. Uh, I still didn't see the three pitches he blew by me. (laughs) <laughs> they were rumored. It was like a whoosh and a strike from the other mouth of the umpire. I think it just stood there staring at things that I couldn't see that I knew went by. All right. There's the next one. This one is from Stephen Pat. And Stephen says, I played a preseason football game against Percy Snow, who was a linebacker oh. for Canton McKinley. I was a receiver at Lake Catholic. I remember the hard tackle on a crossing route I, I caught. I also played with Scott Schaefer, who was a defensive coordinator at Stanford, Michigan, Syracuse, and head coach at Syracuse in 2013-15 to in the Lake County Save a Site All-Star Football Game, summer of 1985. Mm. He was a QB from Painesville, Riverside, caught a couple passes from him, and we won the game. So, mm. all right. Thanks for that one, Stephen. And uh, let's see. We'll go down to this one. This one is from Darren Fry. He says, hey, Terry, you asked for honesty, so I have to admit this story belongs to my father and uncle. They'd send you the story, but they've already passed. I heard this story several times as a kid from them. Like everybody in rural Ohio, they played baseball during Little League regional playoffs. They went up against sudden Sam McDowell. Mm. They lost two to one. The only hit off McDowell was a solo home run my uncle hit. He always said it was luck because his eyes were closed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the, the, the late Mike Hegan, who used to do the Tribe games with Tom Hamilton, would say, once in a while, all of us would run into a fastball. What he meant, you're just swinging, you're swinging a certain place, and if you just get that swing going early enough, and the ball just happens to be, be Austin Hedges would occasionally run into a fastball. It was not particularly intended; it just happened. <laughs> and Terry, so um, you know Bob Dolgan, longtime Cleveland mm-hmm. sports writer, who I think now lives in Chicago. I, I think he gave Sudden Sam McDowell his nickname, if I remember the story yes, correctly. Yes, he did. Does that sound right to you? Yes, he did. That's correct. Um, he did give McDowell that nickname. And, um, well, this is something that, uh, along playing there, when I was covering the cast for the Beacon Journal, um, they weren't supposed to do it and they would never do it now. But back then they didn't have 14 coaches and wannabe coaches on the staff. So sometimes the guys on the bench, uh, after practice where they would want to play run full court. So they wouldn't get a couple of writers, PR guys, and we were out there. I mean, I remember one game, I was out in the backcourt with Steve Kerr. My whole job was bring the ball up the floor. Steve was practicing, running around picks to catch it and just catch and shoot, catch and shoot. Um, and Derek Chivas was in that game. 
and I can't remember, I think Winston Bennett, a couple other guys. I mean, we knew we had to stay out of their way, but now it would never happen. And just imagine, like, if one of those guys had stepped on my foot or something and sprained an ankle. It, it oh, man. Yeah, you would have gotten the scoop anyway. Yeah, I would have. Yeah, that would have been the last for all of us. We'd probably been banned for the gym forever. So, <laughs> A different era for sure. So, All right, we got two more here, Terry. This one is from okay. Chris Fernandez. He says, hey, Terry, my story, Alex Cora, our team from ah. Antilles High School in Fort Buchanan, Puerto Rico, played local high school teams. And his was one of the teams that we played against from his hometown in Caguas, which is C-A-G-U-A-S. I hope I said that right. I was a part-timer, mostly a scorekeeper, until my senior year when I finally got some playing time as a pitcher. I figured this would be low-level enough to count without seeming outlandish, LOL. Oh, and one more story. I've been a personal trainer for 25 years, and in that time also worked with major leaguers. Troy Tulowitzki was one of my clients. Mm. And one time he brought Nolan Arenado, who was a minor ah. leaguer at the time in the Rockies season, to train and work out with us. And he says you can verify it all at his website, chrisfernandez.com. So thanks he for that one, He did not tell us how he did when he pitched to Cora. I, mean, I was right. waiting for what happened. I, yeah. oh, we'll have well. to get that. Send us another email, Chris. We'll, we'll update that next week. So, And here's the last one, Terry. It's from Lou Boyd. And he says, hey, Terry. I batted against Bob Feller in 2002 at Indians <laughs> Fantasy Camp. <laughs> I that hit a counts. Soft, it does. I hit a soft liner back to Bob, which he knocked down and threw me out at first. <laughs> at the time, Bob would face batters from each team during the pros mm-hmm. versus campers game. Typically, they selected the older players mm-hmm. to face him. I certainly qualified in that category. <laughs> Having a photo and video of that experience, I'm constantly reminding my relatives that I batted against a Hall of Fame pitcher. And again, that's from Lou Boyd. So thanks for Definitely that. Definitely counts. It does. I bet Bob still had a little bit of gas on the fastball. Yeah, <laughs> Bob was, Bob was, and Bob would sign that ball for you if you happen to have ten bucks. <laughs> oh, so thanks for those. Hey, if you have any more you want to send us, we'd love to keep this going for another couple of weeks. You can send that to sports at cleveland dot com and just put "Hey Terry" or "Terry's talking" in the headline, and we will try to get it on next week's podcast. So. All right, Terry, uh, we're running a little behind here. I wanted to get to some Hey Terry questions. We've got some good ones here. Okay. And the first one is from Paul Cosgrove from Stowe, longtime friend of the podcast. And he says, hey, Dave and Terry, do you think Trevor Steffen should be given a shot at the Guardians starting rotation? As you know, Steffen was a Rule 5 acquisition from the Yankees a few seasons ago. He's been in the bullpen since joining the team and has improved every year. Last year, he had stretches. We were going a number of games without allowing a base runner. Mm-hmm. I know he is very ba- valuable as a reliever, but he could be a two or three in the Guardians rotation. What do you think? There's no plans to do it that I know of. Um, they believe that the turnaround for him was to get him into the bullpen because he had been a starter in the minors with the Yankees. Uh, he has a, a split finger, which has really helped him uh, move up. I think with the value they put on res- relievers right now, um, their feeling is, especially Franconi, can never have enough pitchers and relief pitchers. And they'd rather be looking at Gavin Williams and uh, Bibby, B-I-B-E-E, and the Miners always say his last name, right? And a couple of these others. You know, Spino, they keep hyping him. This guy's got to stay healthy, David, before I'm on the Daniel Spino trade. He's got to, like, pitch 100 innings in the Miners or something, you know. Um, clearly, his, his stuff is overwhelming, but we – they got to keep him together. I mean, a concern on the on the uh, Guardians is your right now your fourth and fifth starters are Savali and Plezak, 
And you look at how they have pitched the last couple of years, it's not very good. In fact, when you look at their record last year, you go, how the heck did they ever win 92 games? I think those guys are like 12 and 20 or something. All right. Thanks for that question, Paul. And you're right. I think the Guardians have long-term plans for all these guys. And mm -hmm. it seems like when they find success, they like to keep a guy in that role usually, right? Yeah. And a lot of it, too, was um, he was drafted specifically from their reports to go into the bullpen. So that's why they took him. So it wasn't as if they thought, well, we'll just throw him there because uh, see if we can get him together and and have him turn around and, and then start later on. But, you know, to, to my point, I just wanted to kind of circle back. I mean, if you look at, I mean, last year, Savali and Plezak were combined 5 and 18 with an ERA of around 4.6. How the heck did they ever win 92 games? It's pretty phenomenal, you know, but it was the bullpen. Uh, that really carried them through all that. Now, a guy that I like, by the way, is Cody Morris quite a bit. Now they they're gonna they're going to uh, prepare him in spring training. I was talking to Chris Antonetti about this as a starter, but they could plug him into the bullpen. They just like having those those dominating arms, you know, with Karen Check and Class A, and like they still like Eli Morgan. He would Morgan would be a spot starter if they wanted to do that. All right, Stefan on his numbers. Uh, to uh, the point, uh, 82 strikeouts in 64, 63 innings. I mean, that's really good. Uh, the other thing you like is only three home runs in those 63 innings. So a lot of good stuff, 2.690 ERA. But Sam Hetkins, another guy who they love forever as a starter, they put him in the bullpen, and he had a 2.32. I remember watching him, and I just said, I don't see the second-round pick. I don't see it. His stuff is all over the place. He's wild. He was a mechanical nightmare, a big, long lefty, but he figured it out in relief. So I don't think they want to mess with success. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to you going to spring training, Terry. I know you're going to be looking at a lot of these guys. I can't yeah. wait to hear your impressions. And you and uh, and Roberta have always come up with somebody like well, one or her. Two She's the one who got on the Steve Kwan. I was on Owen Miller. <laughs> <right>. so. <laughs> so we'll see what you come back with when you're out there uh, in a few weeks. So, all right, here's one more, Terry. It's from Jefferson Wolf from Chester, Virginia. And Jefferson, Jefferson says, hey, Terry, the Guardians always seem to find pitchers on the scrap heap every year. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on any of their spring invitees and maybe specifically Tukey Toussaint, who looks as if he may be a good candidate for the Guardians Pitching Factory? I enjoy the podcast every week. I heard they like him. I've not seen him. But when you talk about that, and who at this point would have said, I could never get his first name right, Evel De Los Santos, E-N-V-E-L, De Los Santos. And I'm, there's another guy. He was 5-0 and with a 304. There's your... Um, your rummage sale, you know, winner of the of, of the year for them, uh, along with uh, I would I would also say Henkins was that too. Now he was he was well known to them, but I remember De Los Santos. I remember them telling me about him in spring training, and I'm like, yeah, well, so what? You know, is it because they always have a number of those guys in there? Um, they've tried to have Anthony Ghost be that guy, but Ghost is now coming off of uh, uh, Tommy John surgery, so. And then I see another name, the guy that they did like. It didn't really come through. Remember Anthony Castro? That was not good. That's well, I mean, you, you kind of throw them all together and see who comes out. Yeah, just for a little background on Toussaint, Terry, uh, for those who aren't familiar, it's Tukey mm -hmm. Toussaint, T-O-U-K-I, T-O-U-S-S-A-I-N-T. Spent some years in the Braves organization and was in the Angels organization last year. 
and he does you're right he kind of fits the mold of kind of the big mm-hmm. you know six three two fifteen righty and, he's been uh, in some big trades people like him have liked him but he hasn't just done that much um, yeah, 20, he's going to be 27 this year, and last season uh, in, with the Angels, uh, one and one, 4.62 ERA, eight games, 25 innings pitched, uh, gave up two home runs, 19 walks, and 26 strikeouts. So anyway, a name, a name to watch, and mm-hmm. thanks for bringing that up. So we appreciate the, the question. Well, what he can do is when this guy makes the team and is playing well early in the year, he can send us an email and say, uh-huh. I there told was, you so. I told you so. I'm as good a scout as your wife, Roberta. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think we're about time to wrap up, Terry. Do you okay. have a book recommendation you want to mention this week? Anything you want to or, – or something else? A book or something else? A book or something else. Well, um, I like a writer named Richard Whitlow, W-H-I-T-L-O-W. He's considered kind of the Christian uh, John Grisham. And I read a book of his called Relative Justice that I like, but I think you could really find him online. And if you like Grisham stuff, you like his. Most of them are set in the South in Georgia. He was a practicing attorney for years in, in the state of Georgia. Um, and really, some Christian fiction is terrible, and some is really good. Uh, and because it's sort of like when you hear that, you go, oh, well, that means it doesn't, there's no grit to it or anything no just the opposite his stories are good he's a good storyteller uh, richard whitlow yeah and it's always you can tell when someone is an expert in something else and they bring that expertise into the yeah. writing you can tell the fiction is going to be good because it's actually based in experiences that the person has had and they know what they're talking about so that, it's that's like uh, a writer i do like too michael Connolly writes a lot of uh, the harry bosch things a lot of very big selling writer uh, there what he does, he's got a whole kind of stable of the – well, first of all, he covered uh, the police beat for the L.A. Times. That started it. And he actually had done the police beat before that in Fort Lauderdale, I believe. Then he moved to L.A. And then he be, got to be friends with these these detectives. And as he began writing novels, he kind of put them like they go out. They tell stories. He buys them, buys them beer and food. I'm sure he pays them as researchers. And then he just comes up with stuff. And that's why when he'll be moving his novel along to be some weird side story of, you know, how some guy solved the crime because he found some soggy, you know, chocolate chip cookies in the middle of a muffler or just these (laughs) weird things. You know, they're so off the wall that they've got to be true. My friends in law enforcement that I would talk to say when they're talking to somebody, they go, that is the dumbest excuse. Who would think of that? And then they go. They, he maybe he's actually telling the truth because it's so dumb and so off the wall, you know, that maybe it it's right. It might actually be true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it might actually be true. <laughs> dumb enough to be true. All right. Well, thanks for that, Terry. Um, hey, Terry mentioned his the comeback book earlier. If you want to check out any of Terry's books, you can go to terrypluto.com and find that there. And just to give a plug to cleveland.com, we would love to have you subscribe. We need all the help we can get to support journalism. Just the easiest way to do it, and you'll get a lot of cool brown stuff if you do it this way, too, is go to cleveland.com slash browns. Click on the blue bar at the top, and you can become a subscriber. You get a Browns newsletter. You get our Browns subtext service where our reporters will text you from out in the field when they're covering stuff. Uh, it's a great time to get in with the combine and the draft coming up. So there's two plugs. I think that's it, Terry. We done any other things to plug here? We good? That is it for now. All we'll right. see if we have anybody else who like got a double off of Nolan Ryan or anything. Yeah, send us some more stories. We'd love to have those. Again, you can send those to sports at cleveland.com. 
that'll do it for this week. Don't let anybody put chocolate chip cookies in your tailpipe. Yeah. And we will catch you next week on Terry's Talking.